Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Hi. I, I already took a um, eccentric migraine today in preparation. You were pre-gaming. That's good. <laughs> How was the ocean? was nice it was it's 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 important for me to go there it, since we live here and i go to long beach and uh which is like 40 minutes away because there's this beach there that's like really um no one's there and it's you know it's just have, was, it was good. have you ever heard that little saying or it's like a really short poem wherever you go whoever you be it is always yourself that you find at the sea. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't that nice? It's so much it's so much nicer than what I told my sister, which is <laughs> where wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> well that... Hey, let me run this by you. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to, you said something about it's, it's, uh, it's stupid. You're talking about the decision to, to leave and being stupid is exactly why we're here, but it's this combination of being stupid and then being, um, I guess it's impatient, but that also that thing of that you're, that you're describing uh, when a person just wants to get out of their reality. And, and they're desperately seek, seeking a way. And, and this, we have a lot of like a lack of yeah. acceptance. Which is culture. why I'm, oh, I wanted to, I, I wanted to tell you this thing. Yes, we do. And which is why I'm obsessed with Japan right now. I've gone down this Japan rabbit hole. Okay. So Unsolved Mysteries, there's a new Unsolved Mysteries and they're on season two of the remake, right? The reboot. And obviously Robert Stack is dead. I loved him, but he's dead. But they even incorporate him in the intro. It's really cool. But so there is this inch, this episode about the tsunami in Japan in 2011, right? And what happened mm-hmm. after, which is, as we know, destruction and horror, but how the Japanese deal with, or this yeah, it was it was it was it was like the northern region of Japan that was hit the hardest and how and it was a, a Buddhist monk was talking and it was to all about how in in the um, Japanese tradition, the veil between the dead and the living is just like a screen that is translucent and that. Oh, it just, it, it warmed the cockles of my heart because it was like, it was like you basically saying like in, in here in Japan, we don't do what you guys do in the West. We, these people are part of us and we accept that once you just are crossing the veil, um, you cross the line, but you're still just as real as the, as the people that are quote living. And I was somehow it gave me so much solace about my own grief, but also then he talked about as a nation, accepting the fact that we are all going to cross the, that, that veil at a certain point. And Mm -hmm. in, in America, Mm -hmm. at least I can't speak for anywhere else. We just live like, like you say, under this group delusion that we're never going to die. No one's ever going to get sick. And so then when it happens, we're like, Oh no, we can't deal with this. So then we get crazy. Mm -hmm. It's I'm obsessed Mm -hmm. with Japanese, like, like the, 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 what I'm learning about the Japanese style of Buddhism, which is like, 
this monk, I was like, can you be my guru? He was. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and I, and by the way, I, I'm including myself in like the ills. I, I My lack of acceptance too. is the, at the root of all of my problems too. So I'm not, I'm not pretending that it's otherwise, but like, I just, I feel like everybody's mother, like, no, you can't, you can't do that. No, that's, but yeah, but we have, like <laughs> I, I said to one of my kids recently, um, I forget what it was about. They, they're, they're always getting on my case for things like I don't shop with Amazon. I don't, you know, and then there's certain things you can't get if you don't use Amazon. And one of them said to me, like, you know, I mean, I, I guess I understand what you're saying, but like, so, you know, if I, if I need to get this thing and I go, yeah, having principles is inconvenient. And they're yeah. like, yeah, it is. <laughs> they didn't understand the irony they, they, there. They didn't get the irony. Uh, uh, but I, I feel like saying to people, yeah, no, you, it is your responsibility to cover your face so that you don't get somebody else sick like that. If that's the minimum requirement for your responsibility to your fellow person. I, I totally, I, I totally agree. And I, 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 we are really seeing, right, the lack of acceptance and the lack of um, courtesy, but it goes beyond courtesy. It's like a base level um, caring about another, another living thing. And a, a lot of people are so scared, I think, and so in denial that they, they don't have empathy. Uh, they don't, they don't, they can't access any of that. It's like, well, and it's this, it's this vicious cycle where you can assume that a lot of people like that have never been regarded with much empathy or acceptance about who they are. So then they feel very like, it keeps them very primitive and feeling always on high alert. That's what I feel about the people who um, put not one, but two, two flags you know, coming out of the back of their truck and driving. I saw, I saw your, I saw your Facebook post. It was, it was really sad and hilarious, right? About the flags. Yes. Yeah. For, first of all, it's so completely aggressive. And the only way that I know that, or the way I know that for sure is I feel afraid just seeing a picture, uh, much less like seeing somebody driving around my town with it. And, and to me, it just screams of like, I'm so scared of, uh, like I have to protect myself with absolutely yep. every armor. Yep. You know, it, it's just, it, it's just, it, it breaks my heart for like how, how broken that person must essentially feel inside. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, I think that it, what, when you were talking, what the image came to me of when someone's trying to pre pre prevent a vampire from getting them, you know, the funny thing of like wrapped in garlic with, <laughs> with crucifixes hanging all around them. And, and it's like, yes. And someone once said to me, when I was talking about fear, they, and I was talking, I was so afraid of this, so afraid of that. And she said, you know, do, your your fear is not a cloak of armor that's going to keep you safe. You know that, right? And I was right. like, "What? Yeah, wow, I, that's I, deep." It was deep, and I said, "What?" I like literally couldn't compute that it was. And I said, "Oh my god, you're just you're blowing my mind." You know? And she said, "Yeah, it's it, we think it is that it's like this cape, but it it actually." doesn't do anything and I was like oh we think it does because we don't have any other you know we don't we don't well, have it, any foundation for like what is keeping us safe 
Right. Exactly. If you, if you had a, a, a set of skills right. that you could rely upon to, you know, feel like you were in control of your, whatever your, your thoughts and your reactions. So, so because we don't have that, we're just like in this constant defensive position, you know, covering, covering our heads. And I think maybe the reason that we don't know how to protect ourselves in a way that isn't also destructive is because um, almost all of the ways that you would protect yourself that are not destructive take more time than we're ever willing to give anything. So we just want to like take the pill or do buy the thing that's going to, me too. And I'm like this, I, you know, I remember when we were living in the city and we had these kids and we had no money and we had nothing to do we were constantly like we've got to get out of the apartment and we've got to go you know and we ended up many weekends going to some place downtown and like buying shit that was our way of coping with like which was so destructive because it was we couldn't afford it right i understand it completely completely see the thing that's hard is to understand for me, what is going on, but not being able to quote, convince other people. Like it's, it, 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 that's the same with when we were, you know, when I was a therapist, it's like, I understand why you're doing heroin. Like I get it. But the, uh, the idea that it's probably not in the long run, it's not, it's not the way to go is so hard to convince someone who the only thing that makes them feel better is the thing that's killing them. And, and not to bring it back to cults again, but because I'm so obsessed with the whole Nexium thing right now. Um, I love it. I love it. That whole, so they had <laughs> um, the whole thing that led to the sex slave deal. Oh man. Yeah. It started, or it was, it's, they, they're saying in these documentaries that it started as a way to provide a tool for men and women to understand each other. And the understanding turned out to be <laughs> um, the understanding turned out to be like, so women are fundamentally undisciplined and indulgent. Oh. And so they need men to help them to be disciplined and not so indulgent. Wow. And women need to understand that men are, are, he spent a lot of time talking about like how little boys are raised um, to not, uh, the example I remember hearing is if a little girl on the playground hits a little boy, he's not allowed to hit her back. And so women need to understand what happens to these little boys and how they become emasculated. And you know, I don't know the middle part, but the, what what it bridges to. But at the end, it's and that's why men should be able to have sex with whoever they want, and women should be loyal to to one man. And I thought, you know, okay, so so here it is. This whole quote unquote ideology is about taking accountability and personal responsibility, mm-hmm. and having like a hyper um, aggressive focus mm-hmm. on like always doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. 
And then you come to this end where it's like, except for these men can't, you know, they can't help themselves. They can't control themselves. Like the women should work on their indulgence, but the men, you know, that's just biology. That wow. that's, just, that's that guy's a genius. I mean, it's, and, and, and what's really so, so heartbreaking is to watch because they have all of this footage because this guy who was the documentarian, whatever, they were making a movie. He, he was making a movie for like seven years. So he has just countless hours of footage. Oh. And it's so sad to watch this guy saying things. And, and by the way, he says really things I won't, I won't repeat because yeah. they're very triggering to me. And to watch the women just like nodding their head. And then, and then I heard an, uh, some comedians say, oh, this is the most boring documentary ever because you, you take one look at the guy and you say, you would never follow him. He, he's, you know, he's so, he's so obviously. And I'm like, yeah, you can say that because you're not part of a, a, a gender that has been taught to be subservient in one way or another for your entire existence. Well, yeah. And when you were talking, even the, the original sin of, of the, met the boys on the playground it's like well who's to blame for that women probably mothers or like like mm -hmm. telling their sons raising their sons to be to be um to, to to suppress their animal nature that's also a woman's fault so this guy and we said it last time it's like this guy was a horny greedy monster mm -hmm. horny greedy monster and and intelligent intelligent as hell hey let me run this by you to run by you okay which is uh you know psychopaths and sociopaths um are usually really really good at reading people correct and figuring out what it is that they want you know it, they view tend to view exchanges as like what are you going to give me right okay right i I, I want to like access that a little bit. I wish I had the ability to dart into that in a way that's not hurtful, but that help, helps me. But you, I think you do. I think we do. I, I, I would venture to say that you, both you and I can do that. Like that's what makes, look, we I just read this that socio, cause for my mind hunter episode, I was reading about it and we're on a spectrum, right? So now we're on a spectrum and, and people don't like to hear it, but I think we all have a little sociopath in us in order to survive. So like the ability for you to look at your children and say, oh, this is what's going to trigger them. I'm not going to do that. Or this is why they got triggered with each other. Or for me, looking at anybody, my whatever, and saying, oh, or even in a meeting, in a pitch meeting. And saying, oh, this person, I can tell, sums up, they look like this. So I'm going to slant this this way. That's what salespeople do. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess it's all part of a continuum and you're just on one end of it or another. But I hear what you're saying. There are people that get away with going further on the spectrum than others. And usually they're men and usually they're, they're good looking and charming men, i.e. Ted Bundy. I mean, depending on what your tastes are <laughs> in a man, uh, whatever. But like the point is, I think men, right. And there are, you know, obviously women sociopaths, but I, um, I just read something that someone was saying in 
the New York Times that actually more sociopaths are 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 not serial killers than are. So mm-hmm. there's tons of sociopaths in the world mm-hmm. and a very small percentage choose to then become, you know, to kill mm-hmm. people. So mm-hmm. it's and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's knowing Oh, it's weird. It's like, it's, it's, it's so tricky. It's like knowing when the empathy scale tips towards having very little. And, but sometimes I'm like, because I'm doing so much work on right now and looking at serial killers and stuff, I'm like, am I a sociopath? Like I, I, and then I realize, okay, no, because I feel bad when I do something that I feel is right. not okay. Right. And yeah. a woman was right. Anyway, there's an article in the New York times about a sociopath who's married a woman sociopath. And she like, she's like in treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can't, it's not your fault. You're born that way. You know, you're born with those sort of genetic markers and I am letting go of the judgment that I've had for so long about the light, the very light version of sociopathy. That's like you're at a party and somebody introduces themselves to you and they ask you, you know, who you are, what's your deal, and your answer is not appealing to them. So their eyes glaze over and they nod for a few more sentences while and you're they talking. Go. Because I've been the person who's who's always been like, no, I want to make a, you know, like I want to make a connection with everybody that I talk to. And when I see the glazing over, traditionally, I've always been like, asshole, you know as if they owed it to me to have the same desire out of our interact because actually that that's just me wanting my thing i i want the interaction she wants a job whatever I, I just want the interaction but that's still the thing that i want i'm still pursuing in the exchange the thing that i want it's no better than her and in fact she's smarter i'm thinking of a, pers- a particular person who she's kind of like this and she's kind of like smarmy whatever but she has exactly the life she wants she has the business she set out to create. She has the family, the person, you know, she, she did it. She did it for herself. And, and I don't think there's probably another way to do it except for to be more selective about, you know, where you're putting your energy. And she, she chooses to put her energy on pretty much only to things that deliver her something that she wants. Right. And I would venture to say, and good for and, and on a, you know, like if she's, she's happy, good for, good for her. And I think, I think for me, and I would venture to guess for you, that connection, that real connection is offering something um, just as great, or, or it, it may not manifest materially, but it's offering that connect, that feeling of connectedness is something that um, I know I need in order to feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm like living, right. That I'm, that I'm not um, just, and maybe she gets that from her material things or her way in and her, what she gains from that. But for me, like making a human connection, right. Makes me feel less alone, which then makes me feel like, uh, like I'm doing good on the planet. Like I'm not just aimlessly, but you know, everyone's, and I, I, I think playing the game, like, you know, and working for my old boss, Norm go lightly. And he, I've told him this before, so it's no secret. Like he was able to make people really feel that he cared about them. And he did on some level, he wasn't completely bullshitting, but, but at the same time, get what he needed. And I would venture to say he's a white male. It's easier to navigate those spaces 
but like he was a master at it and that's why he was a big big wig producer and i think yeah, yeah. and two, two things can be true at the same time when somebody when somebody is described as like bill clinton and maybe Nor- uh, uh, when you talk to him he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room and, and I feel like people often say that with this rueful thing of like, and of course, they're, uh, they're, that's not what they're thinking. But right. I think that is what they're thinking. In the moment that they're talking to you and they're making you feel seen, you are the only person. I mean, it might only last five seconds, but that is a genuine thing until it's genuinely over for that person right. and they move on to the next person. Right. And you can see, you can see when it's over for them. And then for someone on the other side, sometimes it can feel like, wait, wait, what about me? What about me? But then you can see, and I'm reminded of your Nexium thing, how that could then lead into, oh, I like the feeling of, oh, making these people feel really special for one minute at a time and then cutting them off. How can I get more and more and more of that feeling? It's real slippery. It's real slippery. And I... I, I don't know. It's very scary. And I, I think if I had to choose, I'd rather not be that person and be the person, not that we have to choose, but sometimes it feels like we do, like that is genuinely craving connection mm-hmm. rather than the next deal or whatever the deal is only because I end up, and some people don't, but I end up feeling a little dirty if it's just about getting the thing. Mm -hmm. I feel a little weird. Like I don't feel, and maybe that's just bad business. I don't know. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I said to the, to the car dealer when we were buying the Volvo, I said, I think I literally said like, are you trying to screw me? Like, let's just be honest. Like, cause I need to know, am I getting screwed? Just tell me if, and of course they're not going to, but I couldn't. And, and so I, I, yeah it's sometimes better to just to but but people who are good at business i mean they're good at business for a reason man absolutely and when i think about the people who do who do that thing that we're describing of looking looking for the next opportunity over your shoulder um i mean say what you will but they they tend to be the people who've gotten more of what they want out of their out of this particular career. I'm just fascinated by the whole thing about connection, you know, like Mm -hmm. connect, Mm -hmm. what is real connection and what is, what is, what feels real when you talk to someone and you talk to a Bill Clinton and you feel like that connection is real. And it, and I think you hit the nail on the head with in the moment, if those people are really whatever, I don't know in the moment it's real to them too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah which maybe separates them from psychopaths. I don't know. Maybe psychopaths never feel real. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? It would be interesting to interview a psychopath, I guess. But they, uh, well, the reason that you and I don't know that much about them is because those are the people who never come for treatment. Right. You know, because they never think that there's any issue with them. Right. So it's, and maybe actually like that's true of all mental health. Like it's not that we only get to learn about it in a forensic way, in which case it's so uh, extreme that it it's almost unhelpful. Like my dad was just a regular sociopath, you know, he was, right. just, he was just a person who was a really good salesman and who I did, he did what was good for Dennis. Right. And, and he didn't murder anybody. So he's he not murder he anybody that I know of. And he didn't 
commit any crimes that I know of. He, he right. just, his crimes were all like interpersonal, you know? Yeah. He was, in, he committed emotional crimes. He did. You know? Oh, I like that. I like that. Emotion, committing emotional crimes. It's emotional felony. Yeah. There's emotional misdemeanors. There's emotional felonies. Class X felonies. You know, I mean, I... <laughs> Today on the podcast, we have Tate Smith. Tate is basically like the dude from The Big Lebowski. Yes. In that he he has a warmth and a humor about him that is really, uh, I would say, contagious. I would say so too. And I, in this conversation, a few sort of ideas that I had about him shifted. Namely, you know, he brought... I thought he was just the most confident person in the world. And he didn't exactly deny that, but he, he did he did kind of break it down a little bit more. So yeah. anyway, it's a good it's a good interview. Enjoy Tate Enjoy. Smith. Tate Maybe. Smith. This is Lebowski twenty twenty. Oh yeah. The dude abides. Yeah. You, yes, you need to calm us down. We're freaking the fuck out over here. <laughs> it's there's no there's no need to use any extra energy. You have to, you know, tap your inner Feldenkrais, you know what I mean? Ooh. <laughs> smooth intro, smooth. So you you survived theater school. Congratulations. I'm, I mean I think I did. I really don't know yet. <laughs> You did. You went all the way. You went all the way to the end. All four years. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I was there for four years. I think I remember about two. I remember about two and a half. <laughs> that's how I feel. I, and that's how Gina, Gina and I uh, we always talk, Tate, about how some people seem to really be present and like know what they were doing while they were there and conscious. You did not have that experience. <clears throat> No, I, I mean, I was, I, I mean, I think I was in over my head from the day I got there, really, you know, I didn't know what everything entailed uh, in hindsight, which is 2020 always, but, you know, coming from where I grew up and what I had experienced theater wise and how I had experienced it when I first got there and, you know, it was all just just being in the city of Chicago was overwhelming to me. You know, it was, it was crazy, mm-hmm. but it was, I mean, you know, we counted tiles the first day. <laughs> That's right. We sure did. Wait, so I forget. Did, were you, did you have David or Rick? I had Mr. Murphy. I had Mr. Murphy. And uh, I remember being like, I, I don't, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but this is how, this is how I tell the story is that I remember I think I was late finding the like in the old elementary school finding like room three oh two because they had remember in yes. the old school they had they had the door numbers from like the elementary school up above on the door top that was like this it was like an inch wide and it said three oh two right and it was on the fourth floor <laughs> like the room three was on the fourth floor <laughs> and so I remember I think I was late and the door was shut and I knocked on the door and there was like, what, 23 or 25 people in the class. And he had the roll call sheet there. And when I grew up, everyone called me TJ by my initials. And, and, I, and of course, I had filled out all my paperwork by my full name, Tate, uh, Tate Jason. And I walked in and, and, you know, there's this stern Irishman with like a cardigan sweater on. 
bald and bifocals and he just like glares at me and he says you must be tate smith and i'm like yes i am and so i never told anyone to call me tj because i always people say you're tate and i'm like no my name's tj call me tj and i was so scared i never told anyone so everyone just called started calling me tate (laughs) which is my name Uh which is my name Well, I called you TJ. Yeah. You, that, must have, that must have turned around. It, it, well, you know, then I got to know people and feel comfortable. And, I mean, anyone that's been to my hometown can call me TJ. And I believe that you actually made a trip to my hometown, which is a member of- I've been to your hometown. <laughs> I went to your hometown and it was Memorial Day or 4th of July or something because there was a parade, unless it was just a parade since I think, well, they they've done that before too, but uh, no, I think it was it was either it was Memorial Day, maybe uh, I think it was Memorial. Were the flags up on the maybe? Anyway, it was a fun trip, but there was like four or five of us piled into my old Thunderbird, and we motored on home. And... Where are you from again? I'm from a small town called Lamar's, Iowa. That's right. It's the ice, it's the ice cream capital of the world. It's a wonderful, glorious place to grow up. Uh, my my mom and dad still live there. Uh, I go home quite a bit, and uh, it's uh, I'm very blessed to be from there. It's a good it's a good spot. So, is it would it be fair to say you were like the the drama king no, in high school? No, no, not at all. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I mean, uh, it was uh, it, my you know that's one good thing about growing up where I grew up. Everyone kind of did everything together, or at least that's how I remember it. I mean, all the all the sports guys went out for the play. All the sports guys. Wow. Sang, sang in the choir, uh, played in the band. I mean, everyone kind of did everything. I mean, it was a small town. I only graduated with like 110 or 100, maybe maybe 100, 100 and something people in my class, you know. And uh, so it wasn't, I mean, there was, there was different groups of people throughout the day that kind of ran around each other. But, you know, overall, the broad brush stroke of high school was a lot of people did everything. But how did you... <clears throat> decide that you were going to go to theater school for college (laughs) uh uh, well you know really one of the biggest reasons i ended up where i ended up is i got hurt playing football and i had uh shoulder surgery because i really wanted to play baseball in in college and i thought that was maybe going to be an avenue for me but then uh i had a high school gal friend a girlfriend uh who went to the catholic school and I got hurt and had surgery. Uh, I got hurt in November, had surgery in February, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And she was looking to go to Northwestern. She was a very smart girl and uh, is still. And uh, <clears throat> she, uh, her mom and my mom and her decided to take a road trip to Chicago to look at schools because she wanted to go to Northwestern. And, you know, when you I, I think we took I took the S, uh, ACTs, but now I think they take the SATs. I'm not sure. And uh you know, when you fill that out, I had filled out that, you know, I wanted to maybe be a drama instructor and a coach or something like that, because that's what I, <clears throat> that's what I thought I could do. And so I, I started getting all this material from DePaul and it was really the only school that sent me stuff for that stuff kind of thing. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, so we did the road trip out there and, and we went to Northwestern first and, she loved it and then but she, it was you know very expensive and she could only get so many scholarships and financial aid and stuff and so the next day we drove down to we stayed in Evanston one night and then the next day we drove down and we stayed at the Congress Hotel down by our theater yep. <clears throat> and uh you know it was the first time I was ever in Chicago and the first night we were there we ate it there was an old Bennigan's there and we're sitting at Bennigan's and Morgan Freeman was there and I was like oh, okay this is this is like the first <laughs> 
the first, the first, the first star I'd ever seen, you know, at Bennigan's. <laughs> what the hell was Morgan Freeman doing at Bennigan's? I don't know. It, it, it might not have been him, but ever, but we were convinced it was him. It, it didn't matter, you know. The, the and, crazy thing about Bennigan's, I have to interrupt, is that I also met. I've met um, and talked to Q-Tip from Tribe Called Quest at a Bennigan oh, yeah. in Evanston. <laughs> Stars at Bennigan. Wow. Stars at yeah, the next yeah. podcast. Anyway, go ahead. It, mu- <laughs> it must have been, been those fancy uh, coffee mugs they had for the Irish coffee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably. probably. So you said anyway, so, what you think so, was Morgan Freeman. Yeah, so we were – so then – and so then I, I had a uh, – uh, uh, what do you call it? A, a official visit or a meeting with? It was the admissions director at the time was not the gal that was there when we were there. It was a different guy named Aubrey Payne. I right. think his name was, and he was a very flamboyant guy. And what you know, I hadn't met a, pe- a lot of people like that coming where I'd come from. And we went and met with him, and uh, I, I still didn't understand. He explained the program, and I didn't under I, I just didn't comprehend any of it. And so at the meet at the same time my the, the gal I was with she decided well I'm here I might as well go look at DePaul and so she went and she wanted to go into journalism which she's in now I think and uh <clears throat> um she got a full ride scholarship to DePaul oh wow and so wow. yeah and so uh because she was a valedictorian of her school she was a really smart gal and so then uh she I remember coming out of the meeting and being like my going to my mom and be like I don't I don't know what we just sat through <laughs> <laughs> And then we got we got in the car, and her mom and and her were like, "We love it here. This is where we're gonna go." And I said, "Well, okay, I, I'm I, you know, because at that time in my life, I all I wanted to do is like get married and have babies and you know have a family, and I thought that's the I thought that was it, you know. And so I said, "Okay, well." So then I, we went back home, and uh, I signed up for an audition. And I, we came back out. My mom and dad drove me back out, and I auditioned. And I'll never forget, John Jenkins led the audition. And uh, uh, what was the other gal's name? Um, Betsy? That was Mary- no, it was the long-haired girl that was – is it Christina? Not Christina Dare, the woman that was ma- married to the stage compact guy. Oh, Patrice Eggleston? No, no, no. Oh, Susan Lee. No. Susan Lee. Yeah, 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 her. So she was there. She did the voice thing. And John Jenkins, they had us rolling around on mats. And I just, I had still, my shoulder was still all messed up. And I'm like, I can't do, I can't do hardly any of this stuff. And I'm like, they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to look at like this hick from Iowa and be like, what the heck? You know? And I did a, I did a monologue. My, my drama coach uh, from school helped me do a monologue from Death of a Salesman. I forget which one it was. And I did it. And I remember, uh, walking out of the audition and my dad and you know, they had planned like two more days in Chicago to like go sightseeing and stuff. And, and I walked out of the dish audition. And I said, let's just go home. I go, there's no way I got oh. in here. You know? <clears throat> and I remember going home and it was a whole, you know, it's an eight hour, eight, nine hour drive. And not a lot was said. And, uh, and then I think I auditioned in like late March. It was like one of the last audition dates and I didn't get my acceptance letter until like, I think May 1st. I mean, I was close to graduating high school. I don't remember. And uh, I remember in my high school, I could come and go as you want, you know, so in my small town, I go home and whatever. So I go home and get the mail for lunch or whatever. I got my acceptance letter and I went back and my dad was teaching at the high school at the time and I ran into his class and I, I didn't even say anything. I just handed it to him. I think I I really think the first thing he said was shit. How are we going to pay for this? (laughs) 
Yeah, Which right? I, I think I think I'm still paying for. <laughs> take, take, why did you think? Why why were you so sad when you left? Like, what was the like? Why were you convinced? I just think I, I, I just it was at a level that I had never. You know, my my school, my little my high school had an unbelievable performing arts program, but it was nothing. I mean, it was you know, it was more. Uh, everyone did it and we did, we did shows like we did Fiddler on the Roof. We did, uh, we did, uh, um, I played Eugene in, uh, um, Oh, uh, Brighton beach memoirs. Yeah. 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 I played Eugene in my sophomore year. I played Bright, Brighton, uh, Eugene and Brighton beach memoirs. We did West side story. We did a couple other, we did arsenic and old lace. Uh, we did a bunch of good. And the guy who did it was good friends with my dad. And he, you know, he was a really good guy. Now he's like the head of the drama thing of all the state of Iowa. Wow. And so, and I, you know, it, I was very blessed and we performed a lot. You did, there, there was like three shows a year and we performed for a lot of people. And so, but I just, it was at a level, it was at a, it was almost like at a level that I didn't think that was, that I would be at, you know what I mean? And then when I got, and then when I got accepted and then when we got there, I went to one of the middle orientation things and I remember uh, Jen Didi was in my, my thing. And I thought the only person I remember from the theater school being there. And then I remember getting there, the check, uh, the mom and dad moved me into the dorms and they like, just like we drove all the way there. They moved me in and then they didn't have, you know, didn't want to stay overnight because it was expensive. So they just got in the car and drove back. And I remember just sitting in my room. I had, my freshman roommates were Ben Watson and Eric Slater. <laughs> and I remember moving in and my mom and dad left. And I just like, I think I cried, man. I was Aww. like, what am, I was like, what am I doing here, man? This is, you know, and luckily my gal at the time, she lived in university. Hall, yeah. I think. yeah. And, uh, you know, we split up. It was just too overwhelming for both of us. We split up. Like, I think we were split up by like November, September, November. I don't even remember. And then on and off again for a while. And uh, she was a good friend to have there over the years and uh, and a connection to hometown that kind of gave me an anchor, you know, to get through some stuff because um, it is overwhelming. You know, you're you're young and you're trying to figure it out. But I just remember being there and like I think there was a girl from Brazil our first year there. Oh, yeah. Gigi. There was, you know, Boz, you guys were you and Jeff were from Northwestern and are from Evanston and Suarez was from Chicago. And then you had, you know, uh, people from L.A. or uh, California, and like Sean Spratt was from San Jose, and then then you had like Hunter Andre from Florida, who was like fifty years old as a freshman, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and you had jo- and Jonas, who had, and some of these people had done like movies. like yeah, movies and commercials and stuff, and people from Texas and Detroit and dancers and. You know, people that were smoking and wearing leather vests and fedoras and <laughs> had pagers, and I'm like, dude, what is going on, man? That's fantastic. <laughs> I I vaguely remember that, but so well, that's a weird uh, juxtaposition because you felt in over your head, but I still think of you as one of the most confident people I have ever known in my life. Well, yeah. when you. When you I guess you know uh, uh, na- 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 naivete, naivety. When, how do you say it? Uh, gets you naivety. Yeah, mm-hmm. gets you places where you you know maybe you just shouldn't be. <laughs> 
So, so when you were, cause I had the same experience of my audition, by the way, that I had never, I didn't know what they were talking about. It all seemed very weird to me and I was sure I wasn't going to get in. What then, how did you like it when you were in your first semester? Um, when I, you know, I really thought like, you know, when I, before that, when I thought of college, I really thought of like, you know, the college experience would be, you know, football on the weekends, basketball games in the, in the winter, you know, parties, maybe go to class, maybe not, you know. And then when I got there and it was like, if you miss class, you can't miss class. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, that sucks. You know, because, <laughs> you know, I, I remember getting my schedule and I looked at it and I'm like, like, I think like on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, we were at school that our first year from like eight in the morning till like six at night. Yeah. And we had maybe, maybe yeah. like an hour, uh, 45 minutes twice in between classes. Otherwise, it was like 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. And then you'd have to walk back and fit in some GED class, like Western Civ or, what you know, whatever. But I, 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 the first semester to Christmas, I really didn't know what I was doing. And then I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, candid. Yeah. I, 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 met, I met the people who now – there's people that I have from the theater school in my life where I'll probably never talk to again, but when I see a picture of them or I think about them, it's like someone I went to war with. And it's like, it's like someone that I, I have a bond with and I can connect with that no one else can take away from me. Now, whether they feel that way or not, I don't really care. That's how I feel about them. And so there's people there that I met, around that time, especially when I split up with a high school girlfriend that were really close in my life and help and not help me, but like, I just, just bonded with. And, and then you throw in the other things that happen normally your freshman year of college, where you start experimenting with other things and partying and whatever. And you throw that all in there together. And it kind of makes this like glue that, you know, you just, just holds you together. And creatively wise that after like, Going into winter quarter and spring quarter in improv with with uh, Rick Murphy is when things started to click for me. And I just like I said, well, improv is just that's I can do anything. I mean, I can do I can do anything. It was like it was like power. I don't have to be restricted by the pages. I don't have to be restricted by the, the whether I'm doing it right or doing it wrong. And I learned that being able to fail is OK in improv. And uh, that's when it, that's when it started to click for me. And I think that was probably some of my best work the whole time I was there was in the improv class, those, those, that second and third quarter. Wow. You mentioned the thing about DePaul was the only place you got a brochure from. Yeah. And the same thing was true for me. So give it up to the market. Right? They still, they still find me when they want alumni donations. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely I, I had so I, was, I had some other schools you know when that were in play uh if I didn't get accepted I had a I was going to maybe go to Kansas University of Kansas because that was the alma mater of my drama teacher and he knew people there and I went and visited there and it was just not for me and there was another small school in Kansas that I thought about going to then there was a chance that I was still going to maybe try and play baseball in a community college but you know the 
love, love will love will rule all. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I remember. I remember this this idea of is Tate going to stay with this this woman? I remember the the, the yeah. drama of the back and forth because I re- I remember you guys were like thinking about getting married. Well, I think we. I, I think I told people that. <laughs> you know, I had my my parents. My my uh, you know my parents. God bless them. They're still together and they're still with me. And they're the my uh, obviously, you know, two of the most important people in my life, and uh, great mentors and great role uh, examples, role models. You know, they've been together since you know freshman year of high school. So I, I kind of thought that that's how it was, it was supposed to be for me too, but it just didn't work out that way. So right. Right. Yeah. Wow. I don't remember anything about that girlfriend. So I remember about you that you lived at apartment three, but that must not have been until later. No. So I lived in the dorms my first year, and then, uh, um, but I, by the end of winter quarter and most of spring quarter, you probably could have said it. Most of us lived there because we were there. A lot of us were there a lot, and that's that's not, not so much freshman year, but then then in that that summer, I went home. Um, you know, and, and we'll probably touch on this later, you know, summers were the worst because, you know, you, you waited for the acceptance oh. letter and it was just uh, thinking back to that is just the, it's just so messed up and so financially messed up too, but we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Um, but you know, it was a, t- it was a horrible time. And so, you know, I went, I decided I had gotten a job in the admissions department, which was the best. And, and so I, uh, I said, well, I'm going to go home and I'll come back at the start of fall quarter. And that's when I'll start work. So I went home and I lived with my parents and I uh, worked at a pizzeria place with my brother-in-law for about maybe three weeks and uh, maybe four. And uh, I said, well, this, this isn't going to work out. <laughs> and I was already, and I had, I had already secured a room at apartment three. I got the front closet. Basically it was the smallest room in the, oh, in the I remember in the that yeah. one. In the four bedroom flat, because the uh, the one guy Dave from Vermont had moved out, so it was Pat and someone. Oh, and that girl, there was a girl that lived there that moved out too, and so it was Pat and Sean, and uh, <laughs> then Pat's friend Tim from South Bend took one room, and then Damn. I was gonna t- I was gonna take the other room, and so I started paying rent in I think July first I started paying June first or July first I started paying rent, and so. Uh, I think my rent was like 270 bucks a month. I mean, it was insane. And so I went home and then I said, well, this isn't going to really work out. And so I, I called the lady at the um, admissions office and I said, I want to come. Can I come to work now? And she's like, well, yeah, it's not that not much really going on right now. And I go, well, well, can I, can you give me some hours? She's like, yeah. So I remember they used to have someone sit at that desk. Oh that, yeah. That, that yes. high top desk and buzz people in. That's what I did. For like it was the mo- it was horrible. I would sit. I get there at eight in the morning, and I just sit there. And I, I mean, I, I I go to the what was the the Lincoln Park Market. Yeah. I'd be like, I'll, I'll be back in ten minutes, and I just go buy. I eat. That's all I could do. Is eat. I just eat and drink sodas, and go to the stupid coffee machine maker and like experiment. Like, okay, I'm gonna push cappuccino, then I'll push mocha, then I'll push hot tea, and it was just it was horrible. It was horrible. And so that's that's what I did. But but I will say, all the guys were. I don't think Tim had moved in yet, but Pat was living there over the summer, and he was working it. I think he was working at Ed DeBevix, and Sean was going back and forth from San Jose. But that's that's the year that 
you know, that they took me to my first, you know, dead show and and hey. we went we, we went to uh we saw a Tribe and we saw BC Boys and Smashing Pumpkins at the uh, Lollapalooza in Tinley Park that year. And it's when I first like got into they introduced me to all that stuff, which is still, you know, fond, fond memories. And that summer was that summer was great. It was unbelievable. And then that second year at Apartment Three was like, Are you kidding me, man? That was you you could write a movie about it. Yeah. Yeah. You were happy maybe you will. Maybe maybe you and those guys will. Probably. I'm uh I, I'm I'm really in contact with uh very, very few people um from school. Uh even though a lot of us live out here. I mean on the Facebook I see a lot of people and I see uh, I'm probably most in contact with Pat and Jeff Brown a lot um, just because of the circle a little bit out here. Um, but other than that, it's mostly every once in a while a phone call. I work at a, uh, a restaurant out in Westlake and Judy and her husband lived in Thousand Oaks for a while when his boy was going to college and she would pop in every once in a while and, you know, we'd reminisce for a minute. So you, but you moved to LA and had an agent and you were doing the whole yeah, acting. Yeah, yeah man, I got, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's such a weird, even, so that's, that's like the next, like when that happened, it was almost a, a mirror image of how I felt when I first got to the theater school. Like, I don't know how it happened. You know, I mean, we did the showcase out here and I was pretty confident with my monologue. It was a big physical comedy thing, you know, it was right when Farley was, you know, kind of big and I kind of just imitated him a little bit. <clears throat> you know, I, I got a really good response. I met with a lot of people and I ended up choosing an agent, you know, maybe, you know, in hindsight, maybe wasn't the best choice at the time, but it was the choice. And, uh, and they were great to me. And it, they became, there was one agent there who was a Midwestern guy who, they became like family for me when I was out here. Oh, that's, and, that's like a very rare, rare uh, story. Rare thing. And then, and then inevitably the, the gal that I had the relationship that was from Merced, she was an assistant there. So then I, then I got really into the fold a little bit anyway. Uh, but then I came out here. So I do, we did the showcase and then we went back, I went back and graduated and then I was in Chicago and I was working at a restaurant on Navy pier. Oh, I remember that. And I didn't, yeah, yeah, I was, and I, I, I don't remember. Like, I had signed with an agent in Chicago, in Chicago, but I hadn't been submitted for anything. I think one of the voiceover teachers that did had voiceover accounts. She brought me in for something like me and Brad Walker and a couple other people. And uh, anyway, I uh, went back out with Stephanie White because she had gotten some some heat too, and she wanted to get out of Chicago. And so we went back out in July and we stayed with Daryl Dickerson at a place in West Hollywood. And we looked around and we got an apartment on uh, Sunset and like La Brea. Oh my God. <clears throat> yeah. And it was right by the Rock and Roll Ralphs. And, uh, and I had went back and met with like, had follow up meetings with some three or four agents, ended up signing with my agent. And they said, well, are you going to, will represent you, but are you going to move here? Or are you going to stay in Chicago? And I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move here. And I decided that day, I mean, I was literally like, just like, I'm, I'm going to move. And so we, we got the apartment and uh, I, t- I didn't even think I told my parents yet. I went, flew home. I got back to my apartment in Chicago. I went to work the next day, gave them my notice, basically threw everything away in my apartment or tried to sell it. Got in my car, drove home. By, I told my parents 
And we got in the car and they loaded up their van and we drove to, we drove to LA and they drove me out here. And it, we, I was, we were on a very tight budget. And when we got out here, I didn't have a bed. They slept on the floor in the living room. I had a cooler that we had like cold meat sandwiches. They bought me a little dinette set because that was Stephanie didn't have that and she wanted one. So I bought that. They did buy me a bed right before they left. They were here for like three days, four days. And then uh, they left and uh, I was by myself and I, I didn't have work. I, didn't, I, had like, I don't even know how much money I had. And so before I had left, I had gotten a call about a movie that a lot of people were attached to that, that from school. Sean Gunn was attached to it. Judy was attached to it. Uh, Jamie Kennedy was attached to it, who was a pretty big name because he just done Scream and he was just finishing Scream 2. This other guy, Kevin Patrick Walls, who was in Blade, I think, had a small part in Blade. And he had a small part in Scream, too, I think. Anyway, it was a movie about these high or, uh, college kids. And so my agent in Chicago wanted me to read for it. And it shot in Wisconsin. And I said, well, I'm not going to. I don't want to read. It's the only time I ever said no to anything. I was like, I don't want to read for it. I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to move to L.A. And, you know, I'm not going to stay in Wisconsin to shoot a movie with kids I went to high, you know, went to college with. And so I moved, to, I moved out here. My parents... The day I think it was the day my parents left, I get a, my first voicemail on my like old. You had the voicemail phone thing with the, the tape thing, and it was it was my agent. He is he's I have an audition for you. You know, back then you get a call on like Monday, and the audition would be Friday. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, right, right. Which was the best. It was awesome, you know. And so uh, I got it was it was for the same movie, and they go I go man. I said no to it in Chicago. Is that a big deal? And he goes, no, they really want to see you. And of course, I w- I went my first audition. I booked it, and like three three weeks later. I was back in Wisconsin for like, I think we shot for eight weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Uh, and then, what, what movie? What was it called? Uh, it was a, a never released, never seen before movie called Stricken, which was uh, oh, it, yeah, I remember, yeah, but I yeah. remember everyone yeah. was in that movie. Yeah, it was it was a lot a lot of Chicago people in it, and it was a great experience. First time I was ever on a set. First time I'd ever been in front of a real camera, and it was a shoestring budget. But and thank God that. You know, Judy had already done a, the move, one Schwimmer movie she had a small part in. So she kind of, I lean on her hard saying, I, what am I doing? A lot of our stuff was together. Am I doing okay, you know? And she was she was great. And I remember then we were we were in Wisconsin last night, uh, Wisconsin, we were on shooting nights. And uh, the a director had entered it into New York Film Festival. I don't even know which one, some small one, as a work in progress. And so he goes, we're going to go to New York right as we wrap. And I'd never been to New York. I'm like, that was that was even like more crazy. And I think I paid for my ticket because I won a little money playing poker with the guys. And and I went to New York for the first time. And I went and we stayed with Sean, one of Sean Gunn's brothers. And uh, it was just like, I thought, I thought this is it, man. This, you uh, made, it. made it. And then I came home and I did work for a long I, I did a couple commercials that, you know, paid the bills. And I then I did got stuff started going rolling. But, you know. I got so lucky. I, did, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I've always been kind of a procrastinator and a little bit lazy. And I never, I've been very blessed to have things kind of just fall into my lap. And, I, you know, auditioning, I just hated it. And uh, I just thought it's just so, so like, just, this can be just demeaning to people. You know, it's really hard. You got to have really tough skin. And I just didn't, I didn't really know. So I didn't care at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I just got lucky, man. And I booked, booked, I put my resume up against a lot of people that came out here to do stuff. I had a great like 10 year run 
and, you know, made some good money and spent it all and had fun and, and learned a lot from it. So you mean you, you've walked away from it altogether? I, I have no, yeah, I haven't done anything in a while. I, I don't know if I've walked away from it altogether. I think I feel uh, my wife is still in the business and I obviously have friends that uh, I are close to like you two and uh, uh, other people that are in the business. Um, so I, I don't feel like I've said goodbye to it. Um, it's just not for me right now. I'm, I'm just, I'm in a, a spot in my life where I feel like my comedy and my art uh, is good enough for an audience of one. And that's me. That's me. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed. I, I really enjoy what I do in, in the restaurant business. I mean, obviously now in the, in the times that we're in, it's completely different, but pre pre COVID and pre shutdown, you know, I, I felt like I was on stage every night behind the bar and, and, you know, I was very lucky to weave in things that I've learned and mostly about speaking to people, storytelling, uh, being confident uh, in yourself and your opinions or your comedy and, you know, uh, timing stuff that I've learned over the years that is very fulfilling. It's very fulfilling to host people and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm working for gratuity as well, you know? So it, it's almost like instant gratification as well. So if you know that you have someone that comes in and it is, you can read their, their energy. And by the time they're done with you, their energy has turned from, you know, purple to green you know, and you've turned them around and they're leaving your place in a better mental state and more open to being, because everything's life should always be about laughs. It should never be too serious. And so when you do that for people, unbeknownst to them, that's for me when it pays off the most and you see it, you see it this close. The other way it's though, I love the, when I was very lucky to do the television stuff and movie stuff, but that's like, you don't even know what you're doing. I mean, it's just, it's so, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, it's like uh, nebulous. Yeah, it's just, just so. It's, it, yeah, it's just so like. Uh, I, um, I forget the word, but it's like so. It's tedious. It's it's um, nonlinear. Right. It's it's uh, it's just weird, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like weird. disconnected. Yeah, and and the, and then you know when I chose to move out here, I don't know if this is true or not anymore. Or, or maybe it was it wasn't even true then. It's just it's it was true to me just because I was a little bit lazy and I didn't want to really do much. But you just basically say goodbye to theater when you move to LA. Really, I think you know. I mean, it's not like Chicago or, or New York, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Did you like <clears throat> theater? Did you really love doing theater? Or um, I like <laughs> some parts of it. <laughs> I hated re- I, I, rehearsing to me. Rehearsing to me was the bait of my existence. I, rehearsal to oh. me is just, it's just, there's no, there's no reason to rehearse uh, something for six, eight weeks and then put it up. I think that's just stupid. I'd rather rehearse something for 12 hours a day for five days and then do a eight week run. Because, you know, if, if theater is all about being organic and discovering and living in the moment, how can you just repetitiously reproduce the same shit over and over again <laughs> for six weeks when no one's there and then go expecting to be organic when people are there and everything changes when you have that extra adrenaline. For me anyway, it was like being a, 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 a sports guy. The adrenaline of, of playing in the moment was the hot, was the payoff. 
Yeah, Which that, makes sense why improv was your oh, jam. Oh, God, the best. Yeah, it was the best. I mean, I still to this day, like, you know, at work and stuff, I'll, I'm really blessed with a great memory on some things. <laughs> and then some things, like, I don't know if I just blocked them out or I just didn't, it wasn't that interesting to me, so I don't remember it. But I specifically have vivid uh, color, in color, high def memories of improvs that not only I did, but other people did from first year, second year, third year. I remember an improv of Peyton Merrick where he played Zeus and nobody got it. And Murphy said he didn't know what he was doing. And he was running around the the classroom throwing, throwing lightning bolts down with Rollo. Like, and Rollo was just standing there in his overalls and like a beanie going, hmm. And Peyton's just sweating, running around playing Zeus. <laughs> And I was just like, this is this, this guy's imagination is unbelievable. It was amazing. <laughs> oh my god. That's, That's brilliant. <laughs> well, you touched a little bit on it, but you you talked about the cutting system and we talk a lot about that on this podcast oh, about man, dude. So tell me cuz you obviously have a strong reaction to it. What what comes up for you when you think about all that? I'm going to be real candid, man. A, a lot of it comes up to the, in, in my opinion, I'm sure that there was some artistic uh, decisions made by whoever decided who was coming back or who wasn't. But uh, on the other hand, I think a lot of, some of it had to do was who was paying the bills too. I mean, people that were on financial aid or, or versus the person who was paying their tuition in full or people that, you know, had, hadn't paid their tuition or whatever. And I'm not going to name names or anything, but I, I, I just, and, and, and also just to put kids at that age through that. It, and especially, you know, artists, you know, that's the thing about acting that I think that is the hardest thing to, to learn about is that, you know, people in, in um, medicine or people in finance, there's a finite answer really to what you want done. So I'm going to solve this equation. We're going to do this. This is the direction of my company. This is the direction of my presentation, whatever. And there's a finite answer as an artist and an actor. There's, there's no right. There's no wrong. There's no end. There's no end of it. So you're recreating what you think in your mind is your vision of what the character is or what you want to do or what you present your art as. And someone's telling you that you're wrong. Well, how do you right. know I'm wrong? How, how do you know I'm wrong? This is how I see it. And you take that as for most of us, 18, 19 year old kids who are away from home for the first time, who like college are starting to experiment with fitting in and all this other things. And then you put this judgment on top of it. And it's just, it's overwhelming. I think, I think. Yeah. I don't. I don't know how else. I don't know if they still do it. If there's, if that program. No, is they still, don't. They don't. they don't do it anymore. Well, so, did you? Were you on warning ever? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I think maybe I had a stern talking to. You know, for for being not maybe putting as much effort as into things as I I should have. Um, but I think that was my third year. I was doing a show. Uh, called um, Jen Didi and I were in it 
Um, it was a workshop show, British show. I can't remember the name of it. But I was horrible with accents. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. it was it was wasn't it was it Patrice's Epsom Downs? No, that was no. that was oh. second year. That was horrible. Oh. They wanted they were that's I played a horse in that show. Yeah, I played, and, and I played a ghost. Yeah, oh, all, they, all, and, all, all three of us were in that. I did, I didn't they wanted they that. said and the, and the and the when they gave us the Samuel French thing, we read it. It said all the horses appear on stage naked, <laughs> naked. And I said no, no, they don't. No, no, I'm not going to be naked in a workshop when the audience is six feet away from my dingaling, dude. <laughs> All I remember, all I remember about that play is that I had to spend a lot of time being like, "Yeah, yes, yes," <laughs> watching the horses yeah. go by. Yeah. Yeah. So, but did, were you when you went home that you said like when you went home were you like petrified that you would get cut? Is that why you said it was horrible, or you just thought it was horrible in, in the principle just, of the whole thing? I just remember. You know, I, I'm not trying to sound uh, overconfident or anything, but I, I never felt I was concerned. I was waiting for my letter, but I'm I'm a pretty sensitive guy. I was always very concerned for other people, the other the other people, you know, um, and a lot of them were my good friends. And and for some reason, you know, you have uh, we all have intuition, and you know, some some people almost brought it. I'm not judging, but I think some people maybe brought it on themselves a little bit because they, 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 they didn't, I don't know. It's, it's almost like you played the game. You know what I mean? Like if you went along and agreed with what they were telling you, you probably were going right. to be okay. If you butted heads with them and didn't, and didn't say, well, I see it this way, then maybe, well, you know, he's, he's not going to, he's not buying into the program. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, that's it. That's but that, that, that's in life, you know. I mean, and, and that's a lesson you you learn. Like, you know, there's people that are going to be your superiors that you know you might not agree with, and it it comes down to to in my life to you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be liked? Sometimes you can't be both, you know. So it's it's tough. It's a tough lesson to learn, and it's 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 still to this day. I think there was a lot of talented people that really would have prospered uh, if they didn't. Uh, to me, like that, I. I I mean, whatever, it's fine the way it turned out, but it maybe it would have been better if I'd been cut than oh, maybe just this I think constant well, well you you know going at that time in our in your life, you know and as artists, a lot of us are just looking for someone to say, "You did good or you deserve this or yep. we or we choose you, that acceptance, you know what I mean, and so when you don't hear it for four years and you're paying all this money and you're doing, and you're doing everything they tell you to do, it fucking sucks, man. You know, it's, uh, it's like, it's, you know, and that's the things that I, I, I use a cliche all the time because people will always ask me where I went to school and I'll tell them I went to DePaul and I'll tell them the, where I really went to school. And then I'll tell them that, you know, I got, I have a, a degree from DePaul, but I really got my education at Charlie's Ale House working there or, or I, 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 or I got my education from the city of Chicago, or I got my education from the people I went to school with. I have a degree that says I graduated from DePaul, but I learned more about life. I mean, when I, when I first got to Chicago, Eric Slater, and I think it was, the, what's the, girl, the one gal's name? She's from Texas, Heather. Heather uh, Collington. Heather yeah. Collington. Yeah. And, and Mike Muni. <laughs> and, uh, 
I think someone else, we are all going to go have a fancy dinner. We're going to go out to dinner before school started. And we went to the place up on Sheffield. It was like a Thai place or something. I'd never eat. I'd had, you know what Chinese was to me? Like chicken with like some soy sauce and like celery and carrots. That was Chinese food to me. And so we're sitting there and Slater's reading the menu like it's the Bible. And I'm like, Jesus, if I'm like, I, he goes, oh, we're going to start with some microb. I'm like, I don't, microb, what? <laughs> and, then, and then another time we went, we're going to have another day. We went to Leona's and like, it's like fettuccine Alfredo. Like, what? All I knew was there was spaghetti and red, and, and red sauce, spaghetti sauce. I didn't know what marinara was. I didn't know what, it, I didn't know what any of that shit was, man. I didn't eat it. it was, I mean, I didn't know any of it. And so I, I learned, and, and then, of course, when I got in apartments. Did you uh, get me that job at Charlie's Ale House? Did you work there? Yeah, I worked <laughs> as a hostess there. Maybe. That was a great place, man. Was, did Scooby work there, too? Scooby, so this is how it all gets started. So Alex Scooby, one of the craziest guys, we ran around. I mean, some of the hardest laughs I've ever had in my entire life are with him. Um, he, uh, so he lived above Charlie's Ale House in an apartment. So he his, oh, his, right. his first apartment with Gerber was in Bucktown. And, uh, and so he lived there. And then he, after, I think it was after first year. So his second year, he moved above the, above the Charlie's. And so it was in the summertime and he was 21. And so he'd go down there. I couldn't, I couldn't get there. I was young. And uh, he got a job there, like in the, right before school started, or maybe in the first quarter. And then that winter, they needed someone to watch, uh, work the door, check IDs. And so he said, Tate will do it. And I just didn't, I just, I just stood there and like, and they said, okay, yeah, you can do it. And I didn't tell him how old I was or anything. And that first night I worked there, I remember it was so cold outside and they had a little portico that you would come in. There was one door and then you go in the other door and it was a real narrow bar. And I remember it was, it was packed and there was a line out the door and the head bartender, his name is Terry Zink. And he was kind of a buff guy and blue collar, Chicago, Polish accent, you know, and he grabbed, he, I was standing there, you know, thinking I'm like, I'm like praying that I don't have to like fight anyone or get bounce anyone, throw anyone out of like this sensitive kid. You know, I had like a bad, like hippie sweater on and like corduroys. <laughs> That's so bad. And, uh, he grabbed me by the, the sweater and he goes, lock the fucking doors. Don't let anyone else in. That's how busy it was. So busy. And I locked wow. the door and people were not, it was a scariest. I was scared shitless. And that's how I started working there. And then I just worked my way up that summer. I ran the patio and I just bar backing. And that uh, was your I, first food service job. Well, I, I worked at Dairy Queen in Iowa in high school. But that, was like, <laughs> that was my, the real one. Yeah. 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 That, that, was was that, that, was, that was a great place. It's not there anymore. I think it's closed, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, everything leaves. Was her name Kathleen, the yoga teacher, who said go and do the pose? Yeah, something like that. I think you're right, Gina. Yeah. And to go do the pose. And then she would say, she would say, um, allow, you know what she said once to us? She said, I swear, she said, we were laughing, none of us taking it seriously. And she said, allow yourselves to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Because we were so bad. We were bad. Oh, bad yeah. students. I mean, no, we were bad students. I mean, We were kids. Yeah, we were kids. Yeah. We, I mean, what do you expect when you're paying X amount of dollars <laughs> and the first thing you do is go roll around on a mat for a fucking hour, dude? I'm like, like, do yoga. like, yeah. Well, yeah, then like, I mean, I would go home. I would go home and my, friend, my friends that were like 
studying to be veterinarians and you know pre-med what'd you do what how what's what's going on in school what'd you do um i moved <laughs> I, I i moved to music today <laughs> you're like what what's that and i'm like oh you like you like <laughs> Like, pelvic, like, your pelvic yeah, yeah. You, you, you move, you move to music. So you dance? No, oh, no, no, no. It's not dance. <laughs> that's a that's a different class. We take that fourth year. That's called African dance. We take that fourth year. <laughs> oh my god! And just how seriously? I mean, you know, you you guys are a little more lighthearted than me, but I, I just took everything so seriously, and I. I felt that we, I, I felt that there, there wasn't anything more important that a person could do than be an actor. And you know, <laughs> Gina, you know, what's crazy, man, is I, I feel, I feel that, you know, if, if I was, if I went back and did it today, I would feel it would be very hard for me to do it. And I think I, like I said, I think I just didn't know enough or i was just green enough to just kind of just all every, all these other people are here doing it and they seem to be really into it so i guess i should be too you know i i don't i don't know i i guess i just got i got real lucky and you know uh, i had real good support um you know from my family back home and stuff and and they said you know go for it you know even when i came to la you know they said there were times where you know m- money was short and they'd scrounge up a couple bucks and that's why you know when i first started making some real money I'll never forget the first time I went home and I bought my dad his first flat screen TV. And it was, I felt, I felt so, you know, just so incredibly thankful that they were there for me and supported me. And I, if I could, I would have bought him a house, you know? So, oh, absolutely. So you don't remember the British show you did with Jen Didi, but do you remember no, any other shows you're in? I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to remember the name of it because it was, it was, I think it was after Murphy came in and hollered at me in rehearsal. I, I think it was some of the it was a it was a good work. It was really serious. It was people were crying. It was really I can't remember the name of it. It was about death. Like the there's his anyway. Um I did so I did first year I did uh no I was in Antigone my first year on stage, which I thought that was a big thing. And it was and, and, it was. And, it was, and we, we didn't have any it was me and Scooby. We didn't have any lines. We were just like meat. We were like meat. Guard. Yeah, we were meat. Right. We were just sweater meat up there. That's what we were. And uh, then I did, uh, I think, work or second year, I did a show called uh, The Addy Machine was my first show with Rick Murphy, which was, I didn't know anything about what I was doing there. And then I did uh, Detective Story with, uh, uh, what's, uh, Lou Conti directed it. Um, And then Eps and Downs was the exit show. And then third year, uh, I know I did. I did uh, Merchant of Venice, and I played Antonio that uh, Lou Conti directed as well. I did uh, the Alan Ackborn show with Sean Gunn and Sarah Sharpar and Bradley Walker, where they flipped a coin and it could go two different ways. Called I yes. think it, was, it, was, it had the, they had that beautiful set with the grass on it. I thought it was I think that was called Sisterly Feelings. I think you know my my uh my wife and i had a storage unit that we cleaned out of uh, maybe a year ago and i found a a crate of stuff that i i don't know how i still had it i must i must have pulled it around through like four relationships and like six moves or something but it has i had a lot of my depaul stuff in it and i have notebooks from class from like notes from like uh speech class 
and Shakespeare class and stuff like that in there. And it's so, I went back and for like a day, I just went down the rabbit hole and like went through it all. You know, I was drinking beers, you know, just like, you know, and uh, a lot of it's so funny because it will like start out with the day, it will have the date, you know, have like two, three, four, five, six lines of very precise notes. And then it will like drivel on to like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> I can't wait to get out of here and go, you know, go hit the bong and watch the Simpsons. I can't believe I have to go to rehearse. I can't believe I have to go to rehearsal tonight. I have, I, I can't, I, it, you know, I, I have, I remember this very vividly and I found it in that box. I have a notebook of poems that me and, that me and Scooby wrote. Then some of them are not very nice, but they're, they're fucking hilarious, man. I mean, they're hilarious. Oh, here I was thinking they were like sweet poems. No, no. I know, sex. I no. was thinking romantic, no. sex, like sexy poems. So we, we before we end, I have to remind, see if you remember this story. One time, uh, Whitney Powell and I took acid or mushrooms or something like that. And we were up all night wandering around that neighborhood by apartment three. And it must have been on a Saturday night because it was Sunday morning, like 9 a.m. <coughs> And we're like, okay, they, they might be up now. Let's go and see who, who's up. And for whatever reason, well, no, I know the reason. You were taking a group photo, maybe for like a Christmas card, maybe something the girls organized. Hang on. And you all dressed. Hang on. <laughs> oh, my God. He has the picture. I think he has oh the picture. God. That's hilarious. I can't believe it. And it was just so weird. Like coming down all the people you would envision organizing themselves on Sunday morning for a group photo. Those were the people you could see it. Were we dressed in like, in, in like suits or just like, I felt like everybody was sort of in their Sunday best. Was it outside? Yep. On the front stoop. Well, let's see. Oh my God. It's up there. Oh my. Okay. Oh wait, that's you know I could be wrong, but I'm I don't actually think that's the same. It might be the same thing. Well, I don't we, remember that it was snowing. We were very we, we were all very vain, so I'm sure we took a lot of pictures of ourselves. It, to me, this was like everybody was dressed up, and it was going to be like maybe the girls were doing a Christmas card or something like that. And and I when you were going to get the photo, I was saying to Boz. Of all the people I could have envisioned getting up early on a Sunday morning and getting dressed in nice clothes to take a photo, all y'all were the last people <laughs> I would have to do that. But what was funny about it is you, everybody was horrified by us. Oh, really? Everybody was horrified that these two, you know, tripping losers and oh we started walking up the stairs and i remember you were coming out of the you were coming out of the door and like letting us in and you're mouthing to somebody else lsd (laughs) (laughs) and i remember being like dude i've tripped with you before what what is this what is this high horse you're on Uh, but i I think it was because everybody was doing like this really wholesome thing of getting you know getting dressed up and taking their picture oh i i i i I, i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that's probably the only wholesome thing we ever did there so 
Yeah, probably. Yeah. And <laughs> I, 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 let me be the first to apologize because I probably much rather would have been with you and Whitney about tw- about 12 hours earlier. So. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Tate, this is awesome. <coughs> Thank you so much you know, for chatting with us. No, you guys uh, I Survive Theatre School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>